Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so this week we had a great episode of The Three Apostates uh, back on in the saddle to talk. Uh, we took a, um, a little cult quiz uh, which we go over in the podcast and, and sort of compared and shared our scores and ideas and thoughts about all of that between the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and Scientology. And uh, people have had some really great comments on that. So if you haven't checked it out, please do so. Also, I want to remind everybody that uh, as we are now in 2019, all the shirts that you see me wearing are available at my Spreadshirt store, link below and also up in the corner. Uh, and that uh, you can put these designs on, you know, t-shirts, hats, mugs, whatever you want to do with that, with their little designer. And, uh, and I'll be coming up with more designs and stuff throughout the year. But I just wanted to let you know, if you see me wearing it, it's available for you guys to get to. All right. That all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Rob Kubiets. If someone comes into Scientology and says they are L. Ron Hubbard reborn, how does Scientology authenticate the claim? Or if someone young comes into an org and says they were in Scientology in a past life and have already signed a billion-year contract, what would they do? If somehow proven true, yeah, right, do they have to sign up for another billion years? Is there some written procedure to follow in either case? Okay, Rob, yeah, there are procedures for past-life Scientologists who come into Scientology newly and say, I was audited in a past life. Uh, first off, they will be believed because Scientology does believe in past lives. However, um, that the, the, there's actually a whole three-page issue on this that I was reading before I, I uh, started the show here. And it's, and it's a little interesting, if this, then this, if this, then this. But basically, how it goes is a lot depends on whether the person is saying whether they were clear or an OT in a past life. That's a little bit more, it's a little bit of a different deal. And of course, somebody coming in saying they were L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, you know, they're going to definitely be uh, raked over the coals. Um, let's see, where to start? Well, with, with somebody coming in and claiming they were Hubbard, most Scientology churches would just say, okay, whatever, dude, you know, if you're really serious about it, go to a Sea Org org, because we're not, you know, we're not equipped to deal with anything like that. Nobody at a, at a class five or city level church would really have any idea what to do if somebody came in like that. They'd probably think the guy was just nuts, and of course they'd be right, <laughs> and they'd probably just kick him out the door. If somebody were to come in and really seriously pursue that they were L. Ron Hubbard in a past life, um, they would get security checked. And, uh, and this is actually part of the procedure for everybody originating past life auditing anyway. But this, you know, of course, somebody claiming in, coming in claiming this, and they would have to pay for that. I mean, it's gonna be, they're going to be putting their money where their mouth is in terms of proving that they were L. Ron Hubbard. And the sec check would be extensive, and it would be very invasive, and it would ask all kinds of questions, and they would want to check all kinds of things. And then at the end of the day, they're just going to kick the guy out the door anyway because they're never going to believe that somebody coming in was actually L. Ron Hubbard in a past life. And it's kind of funny because they have these mansions built for him and this whole preservation of the tech thing, and there are people waiting for him to come back. But I don't think anybody would actually be, uh, would be able to make it through the entire gauntlet. And if somebody who even tried would have to have the most intimate knowledge of every single thing about L. Ron Hubbard's life. Because there are still people in Scientology who worked with the man for decades. 
Uh, those all those guys hold up at, at the international base, for example. They, you know, many of them worked with L. Ron Hubbard directly for years. I mean, Norman Starkey, for example, Ray Midoff. Um, I'm sure Guillaume Lesseve met and interacted with Hubbard a couple times. Uh, maybe not, but I know those two did. And uh, and of course there are uh, there are many others. Um, you know, at that level, at the RTC level, and of course David Miscavige did. So he would be, you know, first and foremost, you know, the person you'd have to prove it to. And I'm sure he'd be a little freaked out, actually, if somebody actually was, was, was coming after it with, with full force. And in the church, letting other people know, I was L. Ron Hubbard. Like, you know, really making a production out of it. But such a person would be debunked easily, very, very quickly, by these people who actually knew and worked with Hubbard. Because you're not going to get away with those guys. You're not going to get away with, oh, it's a little dim in my memory. I don't quite remember that conversation we had. You know, no, they're going to want to know the intimate details of private conversations that they had with Hubbard. That would be one way easily to authenticate or debunk somebody who claimed to be L. Ron Hubbard. And, uh, you know, and this guy who's running around right now claiming to be Hubbard, I mean, that's just, that's just a big joke. So, um, anyway, so that's how that would go. And it would take, you know, it would take a lot of work and a lot of money on this guy's part to try to prove he was Hubbard, only to end up, you know, not proving it. As far as somebody coming in and saying they were a Sea Org member in a past life, not that weird, you know, coming into Scientology and saying that or saying that they were in Scientology in a past life. The basic procedure is to find out from the person what their name was and where they were getting auditing uh, and then go find those folders. Scientology has piles and piles and scads and warehouses of folders of, of, of auditing that they've done on people. And, um, I mean, I had 50-something folders of auditing notes and sessions myself, just me. And there's been, you know, thousands of people in Scientology who have gotten lots and lots and lots of PC folders. So they're supposed to separate, when somebody dies, they're supposed to take their folders and put them in a, a different separate location from the pre-clear folders that are stored of live people. I don't know that they do this. I mean, we weren't particularly, you know, really good at keeping up the folder admin and the organization. It was a bit of a mess in, in PAC in Los Angeles. In Clearwater, they have, a, they have a better system. And they started when I was leaving, or not when I was leaving, actually years before, they, we did put a barcode scanning system in for all these folders. And so I think that's probably pretty operational and, and up and running at this point. So maybe they physically separated the dead people's folders from the live ones. I, I couldn't really say, but I'm sure computer system-wise they have it separated out. And so you're supposed to theoretically be able to find any PC folder anywhere, you know, in the world uh, through this computerized system. And uh, so they would look up your name. You'd say, okay, well, who were you? Oh, I was John Jones and I was being audited at uh, St. Hill. And they go, okay. So they call up St. Hill or they send a, a message to St. Hill and they go, look up, you know, you got any PC folders for this guy, John Jones? And if they don't, of course, well, you know, I guess he either remembered it wrong or they don't have the folders anymore. I mean, a thousand things could have happened. Uh, or, of course, you know, one of those things being that the guy never really existed. But they try to get that information. And if it does turn out to be legit, wow, there's proof of past lives. Guess what? I never saw it happen once the whole time I was in. So I don't know that anybody has ever successfully claimed a past life uh, identity, and then they actually went and found their folders. I've never heard of that. I have heard of people when I was in who came in, gave a name, 
They tried to find it, didn't work out. I'm one of those people, by the way. I gave a past life name because I thought when I was in that I had been audited in a past life. They never did find the, the name of the person that I said I was. Uh, I just laugh about it all now. Uh, the other thing they will do is they will, um, you know, do auditing actions on the person to verify past life auditing. There's various procedures they have. I don't need to get into all the details of it. But they're not long or extensive actions. And if a person says they were clear or OT in a past life, then, like I said, they are sec-checked. And they are asked all kinds of, uh, at their own expense, they are asked questions about, you know, okay, well, uh, are you here under false pretenses? Are you lying about being a past life clear? Like, they'll check questions like that. And uh, not necessarily assuming that the person is lying, but just checking it out with an e-meter because the e-meter doesn't lie according to Scientology. Yeah, right. So uh, that's basically what they would do. And then if a person came in and said, I was a, your last bit here, if it was proven that they were around in a past life somehow, would they be required to sign another contract? Uh, but legal contract maybe, and probably they would you know, sign a new Sea Org contract with their new name on it for this lifetime. But they would understand that they're you know, fulfilling their contract from their last lifetime. And that would be quite a story. You know, I met, I met a few Sea Org members who claimed to have been past life Scientologists, but no one ever had proof of it. You know, it was all just sort of subjective. So it would be quite interesting if they actually did dig up the guy's last contract and PC folders and things like that. Uh, anyway, that's kind of how that would go, and there you go. Eric Herner. I was watching Ron Miscavige's podcast recently, and he mentioned a policy document of Ron Hubbard's called The Responsibility of Leaders, in which Hubbard cites examples of tactics a leader needs to master, including violence, murder, rape, child abuse, and so on. He apparently states that a leader should have subordinates under him who are willing to do illegal things and not tell the leader so as not to compromise him. One example is murder, another blackmail, he says, and then asserts that David Miscavige used this policy letter as his Bible, finding Hubbard stating that ruthlessness is an important trait for a leader to have. Firstly, this seems a very Hitler-esque kind of view of leadership, and what is also Hitler-esque is the lack of reciprocity. The subordinate must be prepared to risk all for the leader, but the leadership takes no responsibility for any personal trouble the subordinate may incur. If this is really so, it is a very destructive view of management and leadership and good for anyone interested in Scientology to be very clear about. I'd appreciate your thoughts on this. Well, Eric, basically everything you said in your question is 100% true. There is an issue. It is called the responsibility of leaders, and it is a policy letter Hubbard wrote to get people to back him up and to, you know, uh, Hubbard explained the relationship as a kind of codependent relationship, though. He said that, you know, when you have people who rely on a person who has power, Hubbard made an analogy of power being something you would dish out or that you could hand out to people or parcel out bits of your power to them so they can get various things done. And then that person, you know, is close to a power, relies on that power, borrows from that power, um, and, you know, therefore gets 
more respect, admiration, you know, that sort of thing, but it's dangerous. Hubbard makes it very clear that it's dangerous to be close to a person who has power if that person who has the power doesn't understand how to allocate it or use it. Uh, so, uh, yes, in your question you said, you know, it seems like it's, there's not a lot of reciprocity. There's not. It's a little bit. Um, but, the, but the general idea is protect the person who has the power. So the whole issue really becomes a kind of manual for how to be a cult leader or a cult member. Um, I mean, there is cult leader, you know, stuff in there because it's all, it's advice to people who have power. So the responsibility of leaders is supposed to be Hubbard talking about how to be uh, in a leadership position. But it really is all about how your juniors are supposed to take care of all this stuff and give you plausible deniability and feed you and support you and care for you so that you can get your job done. And, um, and that's kind of how the issue breaks down. And it really is that pretty, I mean, and he makes a lot of... Uh, Comparisons in the issue to Simone Bolivar and his struggle to free South America from, you know, the uh, rulership of Spain back in the day. And he uses Bolivar as an example of how to do it wrong and what he should have done. And Hubbard's examples of what Bolivar should have done are actually far more ruthless and cutthroat and cold-blooded than, uh, than anything Bolivar ever, ever took part in or engaged in. It's very Machiavellian, actually. So, um, so that's kind of an interesting object lesson in itself. When I was in Scientology, we read this stuff, but, you know, when you're a cult follower, your mindset is so different from when you're a critical thinker or objective person looking in on something. When you're part of it, you have deified this leader. So it makes complete sense to you that you should be the one taking the blows and you should, for him, and you should be the one you know, doing things behind the scenes to protect the powerful person because that's your job because you, you know, deify this person. So I guess in a way, if there's any kind of reciprocity, it's sort of viewed that way. Um, but it's a wrong view, of course, right? And, uh, and it's quite destructive. There, Mike Rinder actually did an article on this also, which I'll link to in the description section below on the video here, uh, where he broke this down also. This, is a, this has definitely been a territory that has been talked about by critics, and it is, um, it's definitely a, a window into Hubbard's uh, view of how people should be treating him, and it's, and it's quite an interesting one. So that's what I have to say about that. Jim Gattel. Chris, why didn't LRH get pneumonia when he discovered the Xenu story? Or, for that matter, the OT8 materials? Well, Jim, <laughs> because it's all a fantasy? <laughs> that would be the real answer. As far as the, you know, given some Scientology context, L. Ron Hubbard was researching OT3 in 1967. He had, the years before, 1966, 67, he'd come up with solo auditing levels, OT1 and OT2, and now here was this wall of fire that he released in uh, October, I think it was, uh, of 1967, where he gave his RJ67 lecture, um, announcing it and talking about it and, the, you know, the great catastrophe and all that. Hubbard said in that lecture that he broke uh, his back, he broke his arm, he broke, you know, various parts of his body, almost died in the process of discovering all this. The idea that Scientologists have about how Hubbard does his research, and I guess how Hubbard did go about doing his research, because he had a research room, 
and at St. Hill and then later on the ship uh, when he started the Sea Org. And he would sit in there with an e-meter and he would audit himself, which means he would ask himself questions and look for responses on the e-meter that would tell him that he was going in the right direction, that there was some kind of flutter on the needle indicated there was some kind of mental charge that needed to be taken care of, and he would use that to guide his research. And somehow he had bit by bit taken apart pieces of the reactive mind until that was all laid out and mapped and figured out. And there were lots of different models that were used of the reactive mind through the 1950s into the early 60s before he came up with this thing called goals, problem, masses, or GPMs. And those are sort of the thing that lie you know, at the bottom of, of the, the big black masses that make up the reactive mind. And he, and he said, you got to do this and this and this and sort it all out. And, uh, and then he came up with more confidential stuff, which became the, the, the clearing course. Um, and Hubbard was, was at first, he was experimenting with other people, but then he realized at some point that he said that, um, the, that, it, that the, the charge and the, and the operation of the meter and everything, it goes too fast. And so you need to do solo auditing, where it's just you and the e-meter, right? He came up with that idea around 62 or 63. So he'd been messing around with the solo auditing stuff for a few years prior to the release of OT, OT3. Um, so he was pretty used to, to, to doing this. And I can't say, and I don't know that Hubbard ever really said, exactly what his methodology was when he was by himself in the research room. So you just kind of invent the answer that he sat there and figured this stuff out. He even said in Keeping Scientology Working that, you know, we won't stop and wonder how it was that I came to rise above the bank. I just did, right, is kind of what he says. So he wasn't really keen on answering questions about how he was able to figure this stuff out. Um, so really, in the end, I don't have a specific L. Ron Hubbard answer for you for this question. So I'm just kind of giving you the, the thoughts and ideas that I used to have as a Scientologist about all of this, you see, and the research I did to sort of figure this stuff out. So, um, so that's kind of, you know, I know it's not really much of a, of a tangible, solid answer, but then again, Hubbard's research wasn't very solid or tangible either, so I guess that's pretty much the answer he kind of deserves. Going short. I was at a friend's house and saw a number of large OT books from Scientology. If they're his books, does he report everything we do back to Scientology? Okay, so reporting back to Scientology. Let's actually talk about this. Your question's kind of cute, because no, I'm sure your friend is not reporting you back to Scientology only because you're his friend, you see. The reporting lines of Scientology work mostly for Scientologists reporting on other Scientologists. There are far more. I mean, I'd say the ratio is a thousand to one of knowledge reports or, or, or written reports that Scientologists write on other Scientologists versus, you know, there's a thousand of those for every one report about some public person and some non-Scientologist. Scientologists don't really care that much about non-Scientologists, you know, unless that person somehow becomes hostile or antagonistic to Scientology. So in your example, where you saw that your friend had these books on a shelf, 
if you don't say anything about Scientology or give them a hard time about it or, or bring it up ever, or, or if you only talk about it in favorable terms or even neutral terms, your friend's not going to be alarmed by you. He's not going to do anything about it, and he's not going to report you to Scientology. If you start giving him a bunch of shit about it and start telling him, oh my God, Scientology, didn't you see Leah's show? What the hell, man? You know, you start talking to him straight, he may or may not report you to the church. He's not going to report you to the church so that the church will take action against you. The church is never going to contact you or reach out to you. You're just a friend of some Scientologist. Instead, what the church is going to do is they're going to pull him in and they're going to give him a long interview and they're going to ask him all about you and your relationship and they're going to want to know how close is the friendship, why is he giving you all this crap about Scientology, what's behind that, has he been on the internet, have you been on the internet, what's going on here, did you watch Leah's show? So they're going to interrogate him and then they're going to tell him, well, look, this is your friend and he's giving you all this crap about Scientology, so do you want to handle this guy so he stops doing that or should you just disconnect? And depending on what the guy says, they'll work out a handling or they will just have the guy disconnect from you and you won't be your friend anymore. And that's kind of how that's the sequence of how that works in a very you know, simple level. Um, you would have to, um, so there might be a report in the church with your name on it, or there might be an interview and notes on that interview with your name all throughout it, right? So you'll become a, a person of interest for Scientology, but only the local church and only for the, for the fact that you know this guy. Uh, if you become a critic of Scientology like me or, some, or Tony Ortega or somebody like that, that's when they're going to open up files on you, start printing everything you've ever said that's anti-church on the internet, put it in the file, they're going to start figuring out who you are, maybe do some skip tracing, find out where you work, all that kind of stuff. So that's when they take a more active interest in you is when you are taking an active interest in them and are going out of your way to be critical of the church. Then they're going to find out about you and then, then, you know, things might or might not happen depending on how much of a threat they consider you. So that's kind of how that whole thing works. So for the run-of-the-mill regular Scientologist out there who you're friends with or family members with, there's really no reason to worry or be freaked out or anything like that. Uh, you're not in any danger. Milton and Hubble Books. Just reading Tony Ortega's post about the Garcia case and the search for arbitrators for a refund case. Here's my boggle. Since all Scientologists, even public, are dealt into a kind of sales commission scheme for bringing in new people, like 15%, doesn't that make every Scientologist financially vested in the success of the church? Therefore, in selecting an arbitrator among persons of good standing, that means you're also required to select people who are financially entangled in the outcome of the church's activities. Since all Scientologists in good standing are financially entangled in the operation of the church, doesn't that make the original arbitration clause invalid from the start? Ignoring religion for a moment and simply looking at the money flow, the Garcias can make a case that all good standing members have too much money at stake to be objective. Okay, so you can see I drew this question out from quite a while ago because the Garcias arbitration has already happened and the judge uh, basically kicked it, you know, kicked it out, and they're now under appeal. 
Um, but I wanted to take up this question because I wanted to talk about this uh, sales commission business and also indicate why the Garcias did not use this as a potential defense um, or a potential point in their case since they were the ones bringing the case. Um, okay. Not everyone, the Venn diagram of Scientologists and Scientologists who get commissions or people who get commissions is, is not one and one, one for one, okay? It's not, they, they don't all, they don't, not all Scientologists do the things necessary to get financially entangled with the church that way. Uh, in fact, very few do, very few. Um, what you're talking about are called FSM commissions, field staff member commissions. Every single Scientologist is appointed a field staff member. That means that they are considered an, an, an extension of the organization that they are taking services at. They're a staff member, but they're out in the field, see? They're not like a, they're not like a contracted staff member who's actually working in the organization. It's just, a, it's just an, you know, a designation or a title that they give all Scientologists. As a field staff member, they're entitled to a certain percentage. It's been 15% in the past. I don't know what it is now. Um, a percentage of sales that they get of Scientology services. So if they go bring somebody in to the church or on their own sell a person Scientology services like courses or books or lectures, or they bring the person in and they sit down with the salesperson and they get the person to sign up, they actually work with the salespeople to get the person signed up, then they are entitled to that commission. Um, there are a, a small number of Scientologists, like we're talking less than about, you know, about 10 or, you know, 15 or so worldwide, who full-time do this for a living. That's all they do is they just work on getting people into Scientology and they make a living doing it off of these commissions. Many, many Scientologists talk to their friends or their family about it, but they're not very good at sales. They're not very good at getting them uh, to, you know, over the, the barriers and, and, and problems and, and things that the people say, you know, like Scientology, dude, have you seen Leah's show? Like, okay, that, that conversation's over, right? Um, but if they can successfully get somebody to buy a Hubbard book or come into the org, then they are on track to start, you know, getting those commissions. So in all the years I was in Scientology, right, I managed to, um, uh, well, sorry, as a public person, when I was really excited about it, as a high schooler, I brought, you know, two of my high school friends into the church. One of them I got signed up for one course, and then he quit after that, and the other one I didn't even get signed up for one course. And then over the years that I was in Scientology, I was constantly working with the public to try to get them to bring more people in, especially in the later years that I was involved when I was doing all that recovery work, because I wanted help, and I needed help from these people to get their friends and family in. So I was constantly working on their salesmanship, and even then, Hardly any of them would ever bring somebody in. Or they would bring in somebody who was already a Scientologist that they knew who were friend, they were friends with, who had, who had taken off for a while and they brought them back in. So small, small percentage of Scientologists who actually take advantage of this. And that's why it would not work as a defense because 
obviously you could just select arbitrators who had not received any FSM commissions if that really became an issue. It, I don't know as far as I can tell, from my, from my experience with the Garcia case, I don't think that was ever even brought up as a point, but it would be easily countered by Scientology if it was. So that's the uh, answer to that question. The lightning and the thunder indicated it is time for flash answers. Matsky, since you've been a YouTube producer for four years and are married to someone with a master's degree in film, can we expect some kind of long-form film or documentary from you? We'll see. Um, Melissa and I have uh, different jobs, different interests, uh, so we'll see if we work together on something. I think uh, before the end of this year, you will have an answer to this question, though. Bill, son of Tom. At what point on the bridge does a Scientologist give up cigarettes? Also, what is the most popular brand of cigarettes smoked by members of the Church of Scientology? Scientologists are not required to quit smoking at any point along the line as Scientologists. I know OT8s who smoke. Um, and as far as what brand, uh, it's really varied. In the Sea Org, a lot of Sea Org members roll their own cigarettes because it's cheaper, a lot cheaper. Um, but I couldn't even begin to guess. I smoked cools when I, was a, when I was a smoker and I was in the Sea Org and in Scientology because that's what L. Ron Hubbard smoked. Randy West. I just had a question about the security staff at FLAG. I know we all had to keep stats and turn them in at 2 o'clock Thursday, so what is the stat for the security people? Is it how many SO staff not blown this week? Actually, preventing blows or, or caught blows would be a sub-statistic. Um, security staff generally have statistics that have to do with hours of secure time. So like if an hour went by and there wasn't a security threat of any kind during that hour, then you had 100%, you know, that hour would count on your statistic. If you had, you know, an hour three of your eight-hour shift, let's say, or actually more like 16-hour shift, but let's say you had your shift time and at hour number three, somebody came on the property and tried to harass one of the staff members or something, and you as a security guy had to go deal with that, you would have an incident statistic, so that would go up because you would have handled that incident, but your stat of number of secure hours would go down a little bit because you had that moment of insecureness because there was somebody who came on the property and did something, right? So that's, they, have, they could have multiple stats that way in terms of incidents found, incidents are handled, and you know, number of hours of secure time. Okay, everybody, so that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. If you like this channel and would like to support what I'm doing here, please consider joining me on Patreon. Unfortunately, with the new year and things being as tight as they are these days, I have lost some Patreon followers and I could use some more. So that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm not going to make a big speech, but I do appreciate the support that I get and I really do need it in order to keep this channel going. Thanks a lot, guys, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.